Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by sommelier and beverage director at Sushi Note in LA, Ian Loki, who I first kind of discovered just I follow a bunch of different sushi restaurants and he is running the beverage program there and is also a sommelier. And I was curious how exactly one goes about pairing wines with sushi. You know, yes, it's still food, but it's a little bit different of a category with some of the textures and also some of the flavors of raw fish essentially. So that was like my initial motivation. And then once got further into research, he started his own wine business, his online wine business, kind of with his with his partner there, Low Key Wine, um, which was kind of like an online thing that started roughly out of the pandemic and everything like that, too. So just wanted to have somebody on and kind of talk sushi, but also talk wine at the same time, since, uh, you know, those are kind of two of my favorite things. So we get into his career, kind of the regions that he loves, you know, how he kind of progressed through everything, you know, how he wound up out in LA, which is always a, an interesting story for anybody that winds up moving out there. Um, there's always like some other reason why they wind up in LA and then uh, they wind up doing what they're doing now. So his story kind of is no different in that regard. But you can follow him on Instagram at lowkeywineguy, uh, L-O-K-E-Y, wine guy, all one word. You can also follow the restaurant as well on Instagram at Sushi Note LA. You can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias too as well. We're either at Spoon Mob or at Spoon Mob One, depending on the platform. I think Facebook and Twitter are Spoon Mob One. Our TikTok account is Spoon Mob. We use those intermittently. Um, mainly we focus on the Instagram, so that's kind of where you want to follow us. Also check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We have pictures and photos, references, uh, additional information on any of our guests that have come on uh, too as well. It's all up there. All the links to the episodes, uh, current and previous and everything are up there too as well. So you can find everything there. You can also write in any questions, comments, feedbacks you have, either through the contact portal on the website, or you can just email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. And make sure to follow uh, the podcast, whatever platform that you use, just click the follow button. All the new episodes will go straight into your device, into that player. New episodes come out Thursdays, 1 a.m., um, but sometimes we release other episodes throughout the week uh, for catching up with somebody who's been on the podcast previously or whatever. And everything hits our YouTube channel a week after it debuts on the podcast platform. So uh, without any further delay, here is my conversation with beverage director and sommelier Ian Loki of Sushi Note in Los Angeles, California. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of what would be, I guess, your early afternoon there out in California in the LA area. I kind of first discovered what you're doing through Instagram. I follow a bunch of sushi restaurants. Sushi is like one of my favorite things. You're currently the beverage director over at Sushi Note in LA there. And it looks like a phenomenal restaurant. Can't wait to eventually get out to LA being able to finally you know, do that and come out there and check out the restaurant scene and everything. Before you know, we get into Sushi Note and low-key wines and everything, you know, I always like to start with everybody kind of back at the beginning. How did you kind of first get involved with wine? You know, take me through your career. I mean, you know, you're originally from Texas, I believe, right? Not a place really known for a big wine scene. So it was your first job in a restaurant. Like, how did you kind of get involved with hospitality? Yeah, I um, started really early. I believe my first ever job was like a one-year stint at GameStop. Uh, and when I was like 15 or something like that. Uh, and then I decided I really did not like retail. And my brother, I have a twin brother, who also lives out in Los Angeles. Uh, and he got a job as a host at a local Tex-Mex restaurant. And then I saw that, oh, that looks like way more fun. 
And so I got a job at an Italian restaurant chain uh, that would be known for grilling macaroni. Just getting my feet wet since I was 16 and I was there when I transferred from Dallas to University of Cincinnati, they had a location out there. And so I'm a diehard Bearcat. So there's that. I then kind of went through school and was kind of working off and on there. If ever I had a steady job when I wasn't committed to my college studies, it would always be a restaurant job because I just really loved hospitality. Uh, growing up, we didn't eat out a lot just because of finances and stuff like that. So when we did eat out, it was always a very special memory, a very special thing. Uh, especially in Texas, there's a lot of steakhouse special you know, dinners, talking about the wine scene. It was always Cabernet, Cabernet all over the place. When I graduated about, about 2007-ish, my mother moved to San Francisco. And so when I would go out and visit them, uh, my mother and father, my father would pass away a few years later, but we would go out to San Francisco and I would uh, wine taste the second I turned 21. And then as I was wine tasting, I th can't remember which winery it was, but maybe it was about the third of the day. I started tasting uh, the finer kind of points of a wine. I remember going, wow, why does this suddenly taste like blackberries and blueberries and why does this taste like i'm getting all these other flavors in what should just be you know alcoholic grape juice basically i started to really go down the rabbit hole in that and every time i would visit my mother in san francisco i would wine taste i would go probably every holiday every few holidays and it really like kind of cracked open my brain to this world of flavor and it started to just really kind of take me to a lot of different places i always tell people wine is tasting a different place a different time it's like a yearbook of the senses kind of thing so you could always see oh this vintage was a little bit warmer or there was a fire nearby and you know things like that and those things all kind of play into it they can often play into not releasing the wine at all especially with fires but uh there really just is a, a history there and you can travel to other parts of the world without ever actually leaving and it also gets you buzzed which i just love and then i moved to los angeles after college and then i uh, started getting to the Los Angeles food scene, which no disrespect to uh, Dallas is quite, I would say it's much more intense. Uh, there's a lot more cuisines. There's a lot more global cuisines. It, there's, you know, like, like you were talking about sushi is to me, the epicenter of sushi in America pretty much has to be in Los Angeles. It's just got like just kind of everything. And so then I was exposed to uh, a little bit more upscale dining. And so I wasn't quite in the sommelier world yet. I just had kind of like this, this burgeoning interest in wine. I worked for, uh, I w worked in a restaurant on Ventura Boulevard that is no longer there called Tiplin Brine. It was an oyster place that focused on a very specific style of wine that was Alsatian. Alsatian wine, obviously being wines from the border of France and Germany around Strasbourg. And I had a drink of Mark Tompe Zellenberg dry Riesling. And do you ever like watch like a 60s or 70s, like 70s drug exploitation kind of movie where like the colors, colors go like tie dye. And then you've got this like really psychedelic. That's kind of what happened. My brain just like opened up once more. And then I was like, oh, because usually I was drinking like kind of fuller bodied reds and everything like that. And then I had this dry Riesling that was so mineral driven. And I don't even think they make Riesling in that vineyard anymore. I think it's Pinot Gris now. It was just so perfect with the food and so inviting and electric and like zippy and high acid. And I was just like, I've never had anything like this. From then on, I was off to the races. I was studying Alsatian wine. I went and visited Alsace for like three weeks. I still to this day consider it my favorite wine region. I personally think it's the greatest wine region for food, especially uh, where I'm at now with sushi. 
then I began studying really hardcore and then got my certification through the Court of Master Sommeliers in 2018. Took over a beverage program that is also not there now uh, in Culver City, a natural wine program. Uh, and then after that was quickly moved over to Sushi Note, where I took over as the beverage director in November. So going on a year now. Like you mentioned, started kind of working in restaurants just in high school. Did you ever think about working in back of the house at all, or was that just not appealing? I have a love of cooking, and I have great respect for the people who are working such long hours, uh, oftentimes in really like hot, sweaty conditions. You know, it's a high pressure job. I mean, everyone kind of saw the show The Bear over the past few, you know, months or whatever. And it really, like that just elicited so much anxiety. You know, I've been on the front end of it where, you know, the customer facing end or the guest facing, depending on your mentality. I always needed that interaction with the guest. Uh, it's not that I don't think I wouldn't have the skill set to be back there. I just had a draw of really connecting with the uh, guests who are enjoying the food. And then to be able to kind of like, what's the word, supplement or enhance their experience with wine was even more rewarding. I cook a lot at home. It's one of those things where it's like, I feel like I wouldn't want to lose that passion if I had to do it all day, every day, which is why I admire them, especially my sushi chefs. Uh, the work they do is just so clearly because they want to do it and bring that to people. I feel like I have that on the front of house end, but I've never had a strong desire to be back in the kitchen. No. When you decide to go to the University of Cincinnati, you're in Dallas, Austin's not too far away. University of Texas is a big draw for a lot of people. TCU's in Dallas. You know, Oklahoma's right there too as well. Why'd you decide on Cincinnati? I could go down the list of the schools you say and tell you why I hate every single one of them. But that's from purely a sports rivalry uh, standpoint. Like many people in Los Angeles, uh, I wanted to be an actor. Still do some on the side and everything like that. But uh, University of Cincinnati actually does a lot of recruiting for their acting program or conservatory of music CCM down in Dallas. They actually, after Ohio Texans make up most of their uh, student body for the acting program, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. It's really because Texas even turned acting into a sport. It's, it's kind of, it's called one act. It's crazy. It's, you think it's terrible, but at the same time, it really actually kind of breeds a lot of passion for that stuff. So uh, Cincinnati is a program I had always uh, looked at and really enjoyed. My mother is a, AM, she's an Aggie. And so the idea of going to University of Texas, which I did apply to, but uh, and got into, but refused to go to, was completely off the table. My father was a SMU Mustang. So talk about Dallas. There's the school in Dallas. And so TCU was always off the table because we didn't like them either. And I'm a Texan, so I can't go to Oklahoma. Uh, so then I basically saw the program up there. I remember I actually went to USC to look at their stuff and stepped on the campus and said, uh, I cannot go here. For some reason, it did not feel right to be in Los Angeles at 17 or 18. And I stepped on campus at Cincinnati and was like, this is where I want to be, which was puzzling to a lot of people at the time. But I think Cincinnati has grown so much that I think people are starting to see what I was seeing when I was there, which is, I think, a really underestimated culture, especially when it comes to German stuff and beer. And my family is, is German. And so there was just something very comforting about it. I feel like, and I'm sure you can agree with this, uh, Cincinnati feels like its own separate part of Ohio. I don't really relate it to like, I met some people from Cleveland and they were like, Cincinnati is completely different, right? Than, than the rest of Ohio. Though to be fair, I've only been as North as Columbus. So couldn't tell you how much about, much about the rest of the state from a personal point of view. But I just loved that neck of the woods, that part of the country. I think it's beautiful. I am attracted to cold weather 
as well. And so for some reason, growing up in Dallas and then moving to California, I don't get any of that anymore. So I had my nice four years of beautiful, colder weather. You're right with Cincinnati definitely does feel completely different from the other parts of Ohio, but it also doesn't feel like Kentucky either. It feels like its own little thing. People are way more friendly. I had uh, you know, a friend of mine, he went to Cincinnati for a little bit just for like a staycation almost kind of, I had been there, you know, a bunch of times and he was asking me, you know, about it. And I was like, it's going to be a little shell shocking when like you're walking, you know, down the streets of the OTR or whatever. And like people ask you like, hi, how are you doing? And they don't want anything from you. They're just saying hi. And that's not something you get. It's not something that happens in Columbus. That's not something that happens in Cleveland. It's very unique. It has some of that Southern hospitality to it, but some people try and claim that, you know, different parts of Ohio are part of like the quote unquote New South. I don't agree with any of that. But yeah, it's definitely a, its own departure from the other parts of Ohio for sure. So you wound up in California, you were pursuing an acting career. And is that why also like you wound up working at the Hard Rock Cafe for like six years just so you could do auditions and stuff? Yeah, it was one of those things. That was one of those crazy jobs because it was at Universal Studios. I love that every time I talk about a place that I worked, I'm like, it's no longer there as if I'm cursed or something. But uh, Hard Rock at Universal Studios closed down, but that was where everyone I worked with there was uh, a writer, an actor, camera guy, camera gal, right? I actually met my wife at the job interview. Uh, So that was kind of an actually strangely central point of my life. Uh, I was a bartender there. I was a server uh, first, then I moved up into bartender. It's obviously not a craft cocktail program. They would never claim that it was. You had to know, and you got tested on it, 200 recipes that you had to write down with no mistakes. You were poor testing by sight every single day. And then there were four blenders. So every bartender who just heard that shuddered a little bit. It was the highest volume you can imagine during the summer. During the winter, what was six shifts a week suddenly became one, maybe just an on-call shift. So it was literally feast or famine. And so I would often get odd jobs on the side and everything like that. But Hard Rock was my first kind of intro into like, oh man, this is like about as hectic as it can get. And so I kind of got, uh, I really enjoyed that. And that was kind of the last corporate thing I did before I moved into a little bit more chef-driven concepts. Because after that, like you mentioned, you work at Tipple and Bine, which is, you're part of the opening team there. So that was kind of your first experience being part of an opening team too, right? For anything? Yeah, actually, I was. Um, I didn't know if I was qualified because everything I had done was just so turn and burn, fast casual, hard rock cafe, Italian chain restaurant, you know, owned by the Chili's people. Macaroni Grill. I can say Macaroni Grill. They're not going to get mad at me. I didn't think I was qualified, actually. And then my wife, who had worked for years in New York and who was working fine dining in Los Angeles, said, hey, give it a shot. This is just upscale. It's a little bit nicer. You have the skills to do it. And then I moved into that as the opening team there. And then from there on, my wife and I actually worked numerous places together as part of the opening team. It became something I really enjoyed because I could actually get in there and what's the word I'm looking for? Get in there and kind of set the standards. You know, when you're opening a restaurant that's not part of some giant corporation, everything's kind of on the table. You can kind of give suggestions and they don't get shoved aside because they're not focus group by some consultants in another state, right? You can just really get in there and kind of set the standards like you want and kind of make it what you want. And that was a place that really kind of showed everybody, oh, the Valley isn't as 
isn't as bad as like the stereotype show. And that neck of Ventura Boulevard is really, really blown up. I, you know, where I work now is only maybe a few blocks away from there, you know, or maybe like a two minute drive. So I haven't really left that area much just because now there's, you know, some Ludo, a Ludo restaurant, a, you know, Petit Trois is there now. Uh, the big LA, Texas taco spot, Home State is there. You know, everyone that has a really famous outlet in Hollywood or places like that, their second location seems now to be trending up into where, where Sushi Note and Tiplin Brine was, uh, which is called Sherman Oaks. It's just, and you know, we got a Whole Foods, but that's the kind of place where like starting to open those restaurants along that spot specifically, let me really kind of know the neighborhood. And I really do love that part of the city. When did you kind of realize it was time to go all in with the wine career? I know you mentioned that you still dabble in acting here or there on the side, but like at what point were you like, yeah, I'm going to give way more attention to the wine career versus the acting career? I think I just grew to just love it. I wanted it to be what I brought to the people that came into the restaurant. I wanted to share the love I have. I love food and wine. I absolutely adore it. To me, it's one of the greatest things on the face of the planet. And then to kind of share that with people, kind of like an extension of the hospitality industry, just getting even deeper into it. I think what did it was when I was working in Culver City, there was an opening for a beverage director position at this natural wine bar. And I said, you know what, let's do it. And from then on, I started studying every day. I think it got into four to six hours, five days a week of studying wine nonstop for months and months. I started having fever dreams about Australian Grenache and stuff like that. And, and I really wanted, I didn't want there to be a question I couldn't answer. Right. And so that's when I kind of switch flipped and I'm like, acting was a passion of mine and it still is, but that doesn't mean it excludes the wine stuff. I mean, like I would actually say that it's actually enhanced my, my wine stuff because now I have this desire to kind of eloquently share these kinds of experiences, which I think there's some crossover there. Last time I did acting was quite some time ago. And, but since then it's been more of like a move into like a wine media kind of feel to it and wanting to kind of get out there and be an ambassador for wine for the American public. We kind of got left behind a little bit, you know, with phylloxera and prohibition. We kind of fell behind. And now the American wine scene is kind of finally starting to catch up a little bit. People are drinking more and more wine at a younger age. People are ready for that knowledge. And, and I saw an opportunity to, to share that love of that with them. And, and I took it. Did you ever do the intro exam or did you just jump straight into the certified exam in 2018? So with the court, you have to do the intro first. Uh, when I did it, it was... Uh, in person. Now, after COVID, you can do it online. Uh, I took mine. I accidentally scheduled my intro exam on my anniversary, uh, which my wife was just just tickled about. But it was in Vegas. And so then she was fine because then she spent two days at the spa and that was all good. And I took that intro. My proctors were actually like a few of the people you see in the Psalm documentary, which is, which is kind of fun. Uh, and uh, funny story, the guy who got, and I was sure I was going to get the top score. And I think I missed one question about, funny enough, Riesling and sugar level, uh, which is embarrassing. But the guy who got it would later on be the beverage director at Sushi Note. So I got to watch this guy walk down the aisle, smile on his face, get the big award. And then later I'm like, why do you look so familiar? And then we talked and we were, I realized I came in like second or third in my head. They never tell you the order other than first. But I was like, oh, you, you're the one. You're the one who got that one other question right is how I 
explain it to myself. And then the, that's when the hardcore studying for certification came in. I did absolutely want to be a certified sommelier because I wanted the blind tasting credentials. I wanted the theory credentials. I wanted the service credentials. When I worked in West Hollywood at a restaurant called Nora, the wine director, and he was an assistant manager as well, named Dan Veit, really uh, would start doing blind tastings for the staff. And that was when I could really have an environment that was open to teaching me about the finer points of it. Because you can read all the books you want, but I've run into so many Psalms who have gone for that level two, and it was tasting that they failed because you can't rush that. You can cram all the knowledge in your head over months or over like a month or whatever, depending on your pain threshold, I guess. But then when you, when you can't rush tasting, because that just takes time. It's a muscle. It's, it's something that you have to really, really drink for a long time. And so I always tell people, I probably drank like consciously thinking about what I'm tasting seven, eight, 10 years, maybe with at the end, finally doing it, like setting up mock tastings for myself, tasting groups, everything like that. So that was kind of that, probably the hardest thing I've ever done. So it was always something that you kind of, once you got into focusing on your wine career, that was something that you targeted specifically and wanted to do. Most of my mentors were going through that program. And I kind of wanted the same hardware that they got. I wanted the pin, you know, as superficial as that can sound, especially in Los Angeles. The culture is very much either for or against that kind of thing. You know, there's kind of like a counter psalm culture that's like, you don't need the pin, you just need this. And, you know, to be honest, the court ran into some trouble over the last few years. And uh, so that I think that kind of strengthened that counter court argument. I think wonderful changes have been made and everything like that. There's still more work to be done, of course. But I'm very proud of, of going through that training because I needed personally very regimented training. I needed, you got to tell me what the goals are. I'm going to have to accomplish this to get this. Because then now if I'm hiring at my restaurant, if I have, well, I have a team of five Psalms, including myself, so four Psalms and myself. And if I'm hiring and I see that, I know what it takes to get that. I, like if I see level two certification through the court, that tells me I know at least the base knowledge of that person. If they don't have that, that doesn't mean they won't get hired, but it absolutely means that I have to be more understanding of where their knowledge level actually is, right? I think one of the jokes I heard after I got my pin was someone goes, oh, I got the pin. I just bought it off eBay, like that kind of thing. And which is always hard to hear after you've like kind of driven yourself into the ground studying for hours on end, just to hear someone go, eh, it doesn't matter. But then at the end of the day, it's the knowledge is what matters, not the uh, hardware. What would you say, I guess, the most difficult part of the exam was? The service exam is what everyone who's been in, because now I've been in the restaurants for over 20 years. So I thought service was going to be easily the part I had to work on the least easily, right? Theory is always tough. It's like, how much can you know? Like you got to know everything, a little bit about everything, you know, especially if it's France, you got to know kind of a lot about everything and uh, blind tasting. You're either ready or you're not in that one, but service was the one that everyone says they think they're ready for. And by the time they're done, that was easily the hardest. Imagine you're doing champagne service and while you're doing it, this person is grilling you, right? The whole time it's questions like, we're having langoustine butter sauce. What do you want to pair with that? And then I would say, oh, there's a Grand Cru Chablis. And it'd be, what vintage? 2015, which producer? Blah, 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 blah. Why did you pick that vintage? And all of this is while you're trying to undo champagne while not making noise, pouring in six very small flutes, two ounces at a time for a cheers. And at this time you were still going uh, women first. I believe they don't do that anymore, that it's not gender specific, the order of who you pour for. Uh, whereas back when I was doing it, there was like guest of honor, then women, then men. 
and you had to take care of all of these things kind of in the right order. Uh, some people I know failed only because they didn't pour in the right order, which no longer exists, right? So they would actually pass it now. Not only that, but the proctor I had was a bulldog. This guy was a kind of king of the industry, and he was barking things at me, like one of those gruff kind of like fat cat kind of like restaurant guys, which I, which I think was the point. And I remember the first question I got done because I wasn't really expecting them to start rapid firing that question. And the first question I got, I'll never forget it because it is the single easiest question on the face of the planet. And it was, can you name a European Pilsner? And I blanked because I was just like, oh, uh, what? Uh, and so I said, let me ask the beverage director about that. Because that's kind of the small little how to get yourself out of it. And he wasn't having that. He was like, there's kind of a big one which he's thinking Heineken, right? Like that's that's the big one. Also, that's always kind of like the default when you go to for European Pilsner. And I think he was very, showed a little bit of pity later and goes, have you thought of a European Pilsner yet? Later. And I still hadn't thought of one. And I said the most obscure Cronenberg 1664, which is the beer from Alsace. And he's like, yeah, sure. Okay, I guess. After that, I was kind of off to the races. That kind of like settled me in a little bit. And then the questions got a little bit more, they were more intense, but I, but I would realize what the format that was coming at me was. But man, I don't know if I've ever sweat that much during a service anything because that was just intense. But he had lots of good things to say at the end and that was great. But man, I did not expect that. And the guy next to me, actually, because we were in there two people at a time and I heard him, still friends with him this day, and he ran out of time, which is something I've never heard happen because he was just talking about everything about 10 times more than he should, kind of like I'm doing now. He just kept going to finally called time. And he was on his third go around with the test. And it was service that got him every time. And he finally passed. But service is the one everyone's got to watch out for. It feels like a walk in the park, easily the hardest part. So then once you pass the exam, you know, what kind of happens from there? Because eventually you start your own, you know, wine service right before you wind up joining Sushi Note. You know, what kind of gave you that idea to to launch low-key wines? I think I was starting to get a lot of interest. I would post kind of like my journeys on Instagram. And I was like, I'm going to this. People kind of knew me as a wine geek. And then I would start to post these wines I was drinking. And everyone was like, oh, well, I'm going to the store. What can you recommend? And I'm like, oh, well, show me, snap a picture of what's on the shelves. And I'll tell you what I would get or what I would avoid. Right. And then suddenly people are like, can you just send me some wines you pick? And I'll just like throw you five bucks or whatever. You know, and I would sign up with like something like wine.com or something where I would just kind of like buy and ship stuff as gifts to people. And, and then I realized, oh, I should probably make this legit because if I want to get paid for this, I feel like there's some legal set up a company type things I probably should do. Uh, and that happened in early 2019. Uh, and then the big thing happened was when I started doing the wine consulting gigs and making myself kind of like a Swiss army knife for people who needed just wine jobs. So I think some of the more obscure ones I did was there was a group in Florida who was the insurance company for a house out in the desert. I think maybe Palm Desert or something like that out, out in California. And they had had a house fire and their, their seller had caught on fire and they needed someone to go in there and analyze the bottles to see if they were good. They obviously smelled like, you know, smoke, but, but they, but was the contents of the bottle itself, the labels, they said we can clean, but basically the guy was writing off the entire thing, I think, or was wondering if he could. And I spent the day tasting probably some of the best vintages of Napa Cabernet to come out in the last 20, 30 years. That was a really fun day. And so then I got kind of like 
paid to start analyzing and wine and stuff like that. The other jobs were, you know, private parties. Well, blind tasting has always had like a really cool kind of appeal to people. And so I would run like a blind tasting party for birthdays and corporate events and stuff like that. And then the real big hit came when people would start to build houses and then they had a wine cellar in it and they didn't know what to put in the wine cellar. And so I was basically personal shopping for them. And actually one of those first customers is actually the punter for the Bengals, which is fun. Kevin Huber, I was friends with his wife. We went to school together and uh, they had built a house and, and they were like, hey, we want someone with some knowledge to tell us what to put in there. And so from then on, I started curating cellars for people who wanted a big wine cellar, but had no idea what to put them in, uh, put in there for them. So I've done that for about four or five different people. Uh, and it's, it's that one's been really rewarding. And it hit right before COVID started. So it was really great since I was out of work from restaurants for, you know, a year or a year and a half to then go and kind of have this income that my wife and I could kind of keep going on with as we were waiting for restaurants to reopen. And you still operate this today, right? Yes. The focus has been a little bit more on the beverage program at Sushi Note since the responsibilities have uh, increased, of course, especially with uh, kind of like me. They wanted me to grow the program quite a bit. So that's taken up a lot of my time. Uh, But absolutely, I still get called to do uh, wine classes. My wife gets called to do wine classes and kind of blind tasting courses and everything is a little bit less virtual than it was during COVID. It's it's slowed a little bit now, but I'd say a couple times a month, we, we get called to do some of these events still. Yeah, absolutely. Having kind of these events and, you know, there being like an educational component, do you think you'll ever do additional certifications or anything? The stuff I probably am going to move into is going to be, I would like to get my sake certifications, which was funny because when I was studying for the level two, got to the sake section, I was like, when am I ever going to need to know this? And then now I work at a sushi restaurant, two sakes all the time. But I like, again, I want that kind of credential on paper, even though I have the knowledge, there's just something about, here you go, look, I have done this thing, right? Uh, Just to kind of prove, put my money where my mouth is, as I say. As far as moving through the court, that's something I really have to consider. I really enjoy the level I'm at now. I find that the advanced and master levels are very intense and I have nothing but respect for everyone who does them. I often find that a lot of the master psalms I know of are doing jobs that are very difficult and take an unbelievable amount of knowledge, but they're also not jobs that I look for too much, like brand ambassador for a high-end champagne, you know, stuff like that. Or they have their own wine clubs and stuff like that. There's not really a lot of that. I want to remain in restaurants, and I feel like what I have now is necessary and the prerequisite's been met for that. And to go to for advanced, the feeling I get now is that if you go for advanced, they're looking for you to kind of go for master after that. No one really goes for advanced and stops because advanced is a lot of vetting. There's a lot of a vetting process. And so I'm not sure if I'm ready for that in terms of that being where I want to go next, like that being the next step. I think I'm more getting into wanting to show people the wine world from a exploring kind of way. I always like kind of say like Anthony Bourdain with wine kind of thing, showing people the crazy other sides of wine they don't know about, different parts of the world, stuff like that. And so as far as certification goes, there's some specializations I look at, sake being the next big one I'm probably going to jump into. But as far as going up the sommelier, the court ladder, that's not really on the near horizon. No, I'm never going to rule it out. So then you wind up joining Sushi Note first as a sommelier and then eventually after COVID, I'm assuming once they reopen, you know, take over as beverage director. 
How did that opportunity come about to join them originally? Uh, so the wine bar I was running beforehand, the lease ran out. They chose not to renew it. And so that was in Culver City. And so I moved over. Uh, and one of my employees there uh, said, hey, they're looking for a sommelier at Sushi Note. I lived in the area. I knew members of the company because it's some crossover with Augustine Wine Bar, which is a wine bar I'd gone to numerous times. Really love what they do. And so within 24 hours of the other wine bar closing, I was at Sushi Note interviewing. I think I might have still been hungover during the interview. Is that that soon? Because we had a blowout party to kind of close the other one. I really enjoyed working over there in Culver City with those. That, that team was really great. They've all got on to do really wonderful things. But so we kind of blew it out a little bit. Uh, and then I was up to like 6 a.m. or something. And then I got the call. Hey, can you come in today to, for the interview? And I'm like, okay. And so I was definitely uh, not at 100%, but I guess it went okay. Because I got the job a little bit like, like by, I think a day later, they said, yeah, sure, come on in. Sushi Note being an omakase restaurant, how do you balance customer experience with guest service and specifically kind of like the pairing and everything? Because I asked this to Derek Wilcox, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, because he had a restaurant in New York that he was running and it's counter only and everything. How do you balance that from the standpoint of omakase? It's usually, you know, anywhere from 12 to possibly upwards of 20, you know, courses, small bites. But so if you're doing a pairing, how do you kind of almost like sneak your way in there, but then you're not disrupting the guest experience. They're still focused on the chef, like that kind of deal. Yeah, we have kind of a hybrid. I always always say that it's an East meets West kind of thing because our sake program, which most people who aren't familiar with our program will come in and be like, oh, sake and beer. Okay, cool. Like what they do at every other sushi restaurant. But ours is much more of a harmonious kind of, like I said, East meets West thing. So when you sit at the sushi bar, we have tables, but we have a seven seat sushi bar. And when you sit at the sushi bar, you're kind of like, it's obviously the front row seats like everyone wants. And you're expected to do omakase at the sushi bar because they're really coveted seats. But you do take an order with a server at the very beginning. And actually, the server very well could be one of the four other sommeliers as well. So there's rarely a night where this 40-seat restaurant doesn't have at least two, sometimes four sommeliers on who will not only take the order... Because that kind of because the order here is is probably the simplest part. I don't want to say that the food is by any means simple. It's very traditional. We do edamame style sushi, but the idea is once you do omakase, you're kind of off to the races, right? Now, when the wine pairing comes in, it is very much a delicate balance, sneaking in, giving a lot of info as to why the wine pairs with it, why that som chose it. We do not have a set wine pairing, by the way. The sommeliers are allowed to open pretty much whatever they want within reason. Uh, so I give the colors they paint the picture is kind of describe it. You kind of sneak in, set the wine down, talk about how it goes with the fish, why it was chosen, and then kind of get out. It is it's kind of a delicate ballet because our restaurant is quite small. And so you kind of want to get in there without turning your back completely to someone or, you know, close-handed service. You always got to watch out for that. And so there really is... Uh, a skill level that's developed over time. I know I always watch new hires uh, bump into a lot of things, a lot for the first few weeks. And then you kind of realize what's going on. Oftentimes the communication has to be really dialed in because you'll be like, hey, hand me this, hand me that, hand me this. And they got to know what's coming because you can't really get around them to grab stuff, right? Like having four Psalms 
in this one psalm station at a time, not only is it cramped spaces, but also we're in complete view of the guest at all times. So you have to kind of be conscious of that. So it is a really kind of difficult thing that we've kind of gotten really, really like a ballet, uh, kind of like dialed and locked in uh, for that. And that's the fun part about doing it is because most people don't assume, like they're never going to think red wine, right? They're never going to think white wine. They're never going to think this dessert wine. They're never going to think all these kinds of things. And we're able to kind of surprise them because we found all these beautiful pairings that we can be right intimately with them and describe. What's the biggest challenge with pairing wine and sushi? The hardest part is definitely when you start to get the fish, you don't see that much, right? So there's some fish they'll have maybe for one night, or it's a fish that's only in season for a few weeks, right? Or like Chef Saito-san, our exec chef, oftentimes picks fish that he just loves, but they're not always available, or they're a certain part in their uh, growth cycle. So at this time of the year, they're fattier, or at this time of the year, they're leaner, stuff like that. That will change the wine right? So you really got to know kind of what you're doing, right? So oily fish will often want Pinot Blanc, right? Most people, if they're red wine drinkers, sometimes people will ask for a wine pairing that's majority of red wines. And then that's just absolute like gauntlet of trying to figure it out in the moment of which red wine goes with fish. Because not everything is, you know, fatty tuna belly, which works really well with red wine. Sometimes you've got these more oily fish, like I was saying, mackerel or shad or things like that. And you have to kind of figure out why does this work? And then not every sushi chef makes the dish the same, right? Famously, one of our other sushi chefs completely changes the order from the other sushi chefs. And so all of a sudden you're kind of scrambling a little bit going, okay, not only is he changing the order because he believes the fish goes in this order, but also the fish itself is different today. And so sometimes you can do the R&D really quickly and taste it you know, before the service, but oftentimes you kind of have to go off your knowledge and just go, you know what, that fish is garnished with this. It needs this wine. That wine's not open. Let's Coravan it. And then you can kind of sell it BTG for the rest of the night or hope that that fish shows up again. So really in the spur of the moment, it, it really is kind of like improvisation, right? So like the theme of the restaurant has a light jazz theme, right? That's what the note comes from, everything like that. And so I always like to continue that and say, in the moment, we can improvise. We are like jazz musicians. My father, for example, was a jazz musician. And so we can kind of get in there and in that one moment go, you know what? No one's ever had this pairing before, but we know it's a home run. Let's get in there and do it, which allows us to be more connected because the one thing I never wanted us to be when we started was tonight, it's this fish, this fish, this fish, this wine, this wine, this wine. That to me is the most boring thing on the face of the planet, right? If the wine's the same every night, I, I don't care. Like I get so bored with it when there's literally hundreds of thousands of choices. I, I like, why would you stick with one? You know, like there's five different options for certain fish explore those, right? And at the same time, you don't want to stay in France the whole time. You don't want to do, everything can't be Californian. Everything can't be Burgundy, right? You got to pick from everywhere, Germany, Austria, you know, South America. You got to like bring those things in to show how wine, like these fish are from all over the world in some, some cases. Most of ours is Japan, but we do have some fish from other parts of the world and the wines from all over the world. There's got to be some harmony to be found there. And that's really the challenge of our Psalm team to do. You guys have a pretty large and extensive sake list. How challenging was it for you to get up to speed in the world of sake when you first started there? It was a wonderful challenge because the master Sam who uh, handled, one of them who handled my level one said, if you can blind taste sake and if you can analyze sake, wine is nothing. Because the window of variance in sake uh, in, in that 
Master Sam's mind was that it was obviously there are huge differences, but I don't think there's anything so different as red versus white, right? Red wine versus white wine, massive difference, right? Or sherry and I don't know, champagne, right? That's huge kind of changes where sake, there's this kind of window of nuance that I think exists that you can't escape. And so you really got to get in there and figure out why things are tasting the way they do. Now, my approach to the sake uh, list is to have the hits, right? You've got to have a Nagori or an Unfiltered, right? You have to have a Junmai Daiginjo, something light, elegant. You have to have a Junmai Ginjo or a Ginjo Sake that's going to be a little bit more rich or rustic or whatever, these kinds of things. And so to get caught up on that was really, uh, I mean, other than tasting through them, uh, I was very lucky to have a few of the Japanese employees, which the majority of the restaurant uh, are Japanese-American employees, uh, go over the certain kind of small details with them, like what was popular when they were last in Japan, stuff like that, kind of taking their anecdotal experience, matching it with the knowledge I had uh, to create kind of a well-rounded sake list that also doesn't detract from the main programming, which is uh, wine and sushi. So I had to make the sake drinkers very, very happy while not distracting. So how I did that was basically the sake list doesn't change nearly as much as the wine list changes. And that's because oftentimes you can make the sake. There, there are obviously seasonal differences with sake. I'm not going to say the sake is the same from year to year to year, but it is a brewed product, unlike wine, which is susceptible to weather changes and things like that. So with sake, there's a lot more of bottle uh, consistency. And so I like to have stuff I know works. That way the sake people can come in and have something really great, but then over here to their left is 275 different bottle choices, right? So you can kind of make the sake drinkers happy, but also stay true to the spirit of the restaurant, which is sushi and wine, which still, I believe, is completely underestimated in the world. You can have wine for every bite of sushi that you have, a different wine from a different country. And I think it's woefully underlooked. Uh, and, and so we're still kind of baffled how no one else is trying to do that. Because the sake and sushi thing is traditional. It is. It feels great right to do it it's just we're kind of like trying to like open up the adventure book a little bit and do the the wine and sushi thing to an extreme level when you take over as beverage director what was the biggest difference you know in this new role versus just being a psalm on the floor uh the complete autonomy was very uh was something i i actually now have translated to the psalm team because i viewed it as completely uh, invaluable and different and exciting when I was a sommelier there, it was really kind of like the beverage director was kind of listing the choices. We're going to do this tonight, right? If you see this fish, do this. When I took over, it's kind of about letting go of a little bit of that control, trusting my team. Well, when I was a sommelier there, it was me and two other two other psalms. Um, then it was just me and one other one. Uh, after some staff shuffle, one guy moved to have a kid to start a family in the Pacific Northwest. So it was really just me and one other person. And so then we were kind of running around. When I took over, I said, we're going to kind of highlight this and brought in more Psalms, added a second pairing. When I was a sommelier, the pairing was just kind of verbally talked about. It wasn't even on the menu. And, and, and now I have two, right? We have a classic and a reserve. So that was kind of the big change, uh, for us there when i when i took over was uh kind of like broadening the horizons of what it could be like taking away the ceiling right so there's no there's no end to the uh potential of what we could do 
When you're building out the wine list, kind of what's your methodology? I took over a very burgundy heavy wine list from the previous beverage director, whose name is Claire Coppe, and she's absolutely wonderful. Um, she moved on to work with Som TV. And before that was Andrew Patterson, uh, and he was really wonderful as well. He was a South African Chenin Blanc fanatic. Uh, and so I had plenty of wonderful Chenin Blanc and Burgundy left from them. Uh, and then my thought was, great, now I'll get my Alsatian itch going because I think it's absolutely perfect with sushi. But if someone wants New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, what's the best one I can give them that works with the food, right? There's some areas you kind of have to have. I have to have a Cabernet. I have to have California Pinot Noir. I have to have Santa Barbara Chardonnay. I have to have these, I have to have, I don't have to take up a ton of space on the list or in the cellar, but they have to be available. So a well-rounded list that isn't just Burgundy or just Alsace or just South African or Australian. What was I missing, right? When I started, there wasn't a big champagne presence. There has to be champagne, right? As much as everyone hates Merlot, we have to have some of it, right? Like that kind of thing is there. Like just these glaring vacancies of, what wine like it's a well-rounded wine list so it needs to have have to kind of have a little bit of everything certain things work better than others right but then i also realized we didn't have a lot of natural wine on the list and my time at the previous wine bar had showed me that there's absolutely a trend towards minimal intervention trending towards more sustainable biodynamic organic and all those words we love in california that had to be brought up right i want there had to be something for absolutely everybody and even if it didn't go with the fish because my number one rule is if you want to drink it, drink it. There's no wrong way to do this. If it makes you happy, do it. The judgment of that doesn't pair with that. Who cares, right? If someone wants to pair with it, that will absolutely kind of like blow their minds and it will make it for a better experience. But if they just want to have a nice bottle of California Cabernet, saying no to, to pleasure like that is, is silly. It's pretentious. It's judgmental. And wine is already esoteric enough. We don't need, a, you know, more gatekeeping in wine. We have too much of it. And so as long as you don't put ice cubes in it, I don't really get upset. How do you determine like how big, lengthy, you know, the wine list should be? Is it based off space? Just how big the cellar, how much it can hold or? Yeah, we have a very, very limited space. And so a lot of times, so the wine list changes weekly because oftentimes it'll just be one bottle of certain things, right? Uh, and then other times I'm like, stacking boxes on top of very precarious wine racks trying to make space and everything like that we actually just changed offices that will give me a little bit more of cellar space which is really really great but but it is about maximizing uh the space i often have to make much smaller orders than other people do sometimes just a case at a time where normally i would love to get five right if it's the btg choices i don't want to keep ordering those every week right so the size of the wine list i'm always looking to grow it because i feel like a restaurant like ours probably is going to cap out if we really wanted to somewhere around four to 500, right? If we really wanted to go for it, uh, that would take a lot of maintenance, but I think the capacity is there if you, if you, if you did it smart. Uh, so that kind of dictates it. But the other thing is there's just stuff moving in and out of there all the time. So unless I'm just on a buying binge, it's just shrinking and growing kind of over and over hovering around 250. And so the second I'll bring five new labels in, I'll sell out of six the next day. Right. And so it's like kind of this weird kind of balance so that that dictates it. But also I just sometimes have to be like, no more Burgundy. Don't bring me Burgundy to all my wine wraps as much as I love it. And so it's about keeping a logical balance. I think the list right now uh, is, is in a good spot. It also is a worry of making it unwieldy, right? Are we a restaurant that wants to hand you a giant tome? Not really. 
right? We don't need, like when you go to like one of the major steakhouses, like 1200 labels and here's a book and you got 45 minutes to even figure out what you might want. People rely on the sommelier team so much here. They don't even look at the list. They're like, I want a bottle that's like this, costs this much, that goes with everything. And then we bring them options. It's much more of a hands-on experience rather than just going, here's the list, have fun. So the list is there and it's very long and people really like it. But I'd say the SOM team is utilized way more when we just come to the table and ask, which is kind of the, the way they want it set up as it is, the ownership. Is there a wine region or style that you kind of gravitate towards? I have a sneaky suspicion I already know what it is, but kind of the first one that you fell in love with, what region was that? Oh, it's Alsatian. It was when I started and it is still to this day. I'm looking at my bookshelf over here, which has some of my favorite Alsatian bottles in it. It's just paradise, that place. I mean, city of Colmar, which is considered the wine capital of that region, has the most Michelin stars per capita in the world. It is just the most gastronomically centered area I've ever been to. Uh, Every wine is not only delicious, but it's like extremely aggressive. They're very proactive wines. There's no such thing as subtle Gewürztraminer. You know, there's no such thing as subtle Riesling in Alsace, right? It's ancient. It's got a beautiful kind of history. It's German, it's French, it's German, it's French, right? Everything looks like it's made out of gingerbread. I mean, it's the home of foie gras. It's the home of tart flambe. Everything you could want as a food professional exists there. But there's a big misconception about it. Most people assume it's kind of like Germany. There's going to be a lot of residual sugar. And while there is in certain things and other things like their Rieslings, there's not right? And so going and seeing what they're kind of doing, staying true to their ancient ways, but also not getting stuck in the past, right? There's a very famous wine producer named Marcel Dice. Marcel Dice is uh, one of those people who broke the rules of Alsace. He was like blending when he, quote, wasn't supposed to, right? And then he just said, screw it. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing that. And then finally, they changed their loss for him, right? That's the kind of thing that they're like, well, we can't stand in the way of our own success. And they really have done a great job of like the bottle shape hasn't really changed. The aesthetic hasn't changed. The flavors are still beautiful, but they've just kind of broadened their horizon, shifted their boundaries. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful region. And, and so there's that. If I had to pick a second, uh, I'm a Santa Barbara diehard. I think Santa Barbara, what they're doing nowadays, specifically wineries like Presqu'ile are making these fresh, over-manipulated Chardonnays and Pinots. Uh, I'm a member of one wine club in my entire time working with wine. It's the Preskill Wine Club. Just everything they're doing over there is, is I believe, the future of Central Coast California wine. It's not over oats. It's amazing with food. It's just such a unique terroir and weather setup, climate over there that I think it's really going to shock people even more than it already has. I think the word's finally starting to get out on that. And I often get kind of like rolled eyes from other Psalms and wine professionals when I say, I will drink Santa Barbara wine nine times out of 10 compared to a Napa or Sonoma. It's not even close. I just love it so much. In fact, our favorite pairings at the restaurant, scallop from Hokkaido with a little bit of black truffle salt and lemon matched with a Presqu'ile Chardonnay. And it's not even like their highest end Chardonnay. It's like one of their like entry level that only goes to restaurants. And it is one of the best pairings I've ever had in my life. And so the stuff they're doing is just wild how good it is. Is there a wine region that you're excited to kind of focus on and dive into that you haven't really explored too, too much up to this point? You're probably going to be shocked. And I think everyone who's listening is going to be shocked. Uh, I believe the future of American winemaking that no one's thinking about might be in Michigan. Leelanau Peninsula in Michigan has the Great Lakes to kind of cool it, 
to keep it less susceptible to climate change. They're on similar latitude lines of uh, around the globe with like some of the greatest Rieslings in the world. I've had a few Rieslings from them uh, and they're screamingly good value. The quality for the price is unreal. And so when that happens, it's only a matter of time until a bunch of people flood in there and start to raise that price and raise that price, right? Santa Barbara wasn't expensive until it was. Right now, Michigan, I think, is going to have that just kind of like Oregon and Washington are having that or the Finger Lakes in New York. I think we're going to look at like a similar kind of thing there. Someone asked me if I could have a winery anywhere, where would it be? And I said, well, if I want to live there at Santa Barbara, because that's just paradise. But if you want to tell me where I'd make the most money over a long term time, that's Michigan. I think the stuff is just too good coming out of there. And my wife's from Detroit, so I get to go up there and check it out all the time. When you guys get the chance to go out to eat, uh, are you able to enjoy a dinner out or do you compulsively check the wine list to see what they have when you sit down? It's one of two speeds. Usually I've looked at the wine list ahead of time. So I don't subject any of my dining partners to the post If it's a big list, I remember for the holidays, we were at a Michael Mina restaurant, which is known for a great wine program. And uh, I think even after we had ordered, I still looked at the list for 30 minutes. Uh, my mom was getting very annoyed. It was, she's like, it's like you're on your cell phone through the whole dinner is what she said. It's, it's one of those, those things. Uh, so I either leave it to someone else so I don't subject them to that or I order ahead of time. I've already actually, my birthday is coming up and I have already reserved the wine bottle I want <laughs> because I happened to just run into that beverage director and I said, hey, how many more of these do you have? And spoiler, it was an Alsatian wine. And he goes, I think two. And I go, cool, can you save me one? I'll be there on the ninth. And so that way I don't even have to worry about it. People are, you know, creatures of habit. How do you get someone to try a wine that maybe they had before and they didn't like? All the time. This happens all the time. And I love that you asked me that because uh, some people don't even believe I do this. People who aren't in the wine world don't really believe I do this. People who are in the wine world will be like, that's the way to do it. I'm sure they've done it a few times too. It happens with Riesling and Chardonnay the most. That's the one. Everyone thinks Riesling is sugary sweet because they had it. First of all, I always say as a German, I blame the Germans that they sent us cheap, sugary Riesling for 70 years. Kind of, you know, what do you want? I mean, not our fault. Um, and then Chardonnay, we can blame kind of the California over-oaked kind of value Chardonnay that's, you know, kind of like hyper-manipulated, hyper-manhandled. Um, what I will do is, in that case, I will bring the Riesling and then not tell them, not bring the bottle, and say, can you just give this a whirl for me and tell me what you think? They love it, usually. And they say, I'll have a glass of that. And I have, great, a glass of the Riesling for you. And then they're like, what? I thought Riesling was, you know. And then Chardonnay, I always bring them a Chablis, always. Because that's the one, if they don't, they think they don't like Chardonnay, they're probably nine times out of 10 going to like Chablis. And then I tell them it's a Chardonnay. No one's ever gotten mad at me. People have been like, oh, you made, I had one person say, oh, you made me look stupid. And I'm like, yeah, but you're drinking what you want. So who cares? Uh, but other than that, it's always a blind taste. I bring that kind of idea into the restaurant. Who cares what the label says? Who said, who cares what the grape is? Who cares who made it? Just drink it. Doesn't matter what the price is. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. Because I tell people the second I catch a Psalm selling what's expensive, that's the time we have to sit down and have a chat because what's expensive is not what we're going for. What's the, what's going to make them the happiest is what we go for. And oftentimes that's going to be a grape they had a bad experience with, right? And it's going to be like usually a Riesling or a, or a Chardonnay, the ones I hear the most. I'm sure everyone's got beef with every grape, you know, Merlot, of course, because of sideways, people just think it's bad, uh, but I've got some great ones there too, you know? And so I, the kind of getting rid of their expectations and preconceived notions by having them go in blind, that's the way to do it. Do you think people still get blinded by the label or is that 
kind of changed? I think it depends on the situation. I deal with a lot more. I have a rule that I don't bring in any wines that can be found easily at the grocery store, of course. But then the problem is a lot of the grocery stores around me, like I mentioned jokingly earlier, we have a Whole Foods, uh, but their wine list is curated by a sommelier, right? And I'm actually next to a flagship, uh, I think it's a yeah, Pavilions, which actually has a very great wine selection, right? And so I have to like kind of, I don't want them to recognize it unless they're like wine geek stuff. Like obviously, you know, the big boys are all going to be there, Dovi Sot and stuff like that. You're going to, you're going to know those, right? But I want them to, so, so usually when you have more esoteric lists or some styles that people don't really have, label's kind of not a part of it because they don't really know what they're getting into anyway. But I do find that there are some trends with wine labels that people are seeking out, especially in Los Angeles specifically. Um, the natural wine movement, which I keep bringing up because it's just such a, a crucial and relevant part of wine culture in Los Angeles right now. The wine labels all kind of look alike. They're always like white labels with colored pencil drawing on it and very kind of, I don't want to use the word hipster, but it totally is like that kind of thing because that's the audience they're marketing to and, and everything like that. So some people will be like, oh, that's a natural wine. How do you know? I can see the label. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. We don't know anything about the wine inside and natural doesn't really mean anything, right? It's not a, it's not a legal term. And so there's that. Most of the time, though, I think we're kind of away from judging a book by its cover with the label. I will tell you, people notice when the label sucks. I've had great wine and the, and the artwork on the label was just so bad. Like it's from such a small producer that looks like they printed it in their office and stuck it on with like a label sticker maker kind of thing. Like you put it in an ice bucket, the ink runs. Like it's kind of like that or just falls off, right? Those kind of ones, you're kind of like, oh, wow, they couldn't have sprung for like any kind of any kind of higher quality paper product, you know? But other than that, I, I think the idea of like the label being the thing, especially because I don't really show the label too much, uh, is, is not really as much of an issue in our, in our restaurant. Where do you see the wine industry kind of headed over the course of the, the remainder of this decade? This decade, I think we're going to see shifts in locations. Like I was talking about Michigan earlier, I think Napa's in a lot of trouble with climate change. I think they would tell you the same. Um, I think we're going to be shifting to a lot less, um, a lot more of um, sustainability and not necessarily biodynamic because that's a very specific holistic way of going. But I think organic, sustainable, um, that's going to be, if it's not already the norm, it's going to become even more of the norm. I don't even have to ask. I used to have to ask reps, don't bring me anything that isn't organic or sustainable or by, you know, or farm biodynamics even better. But if you but don't bring me anything that isn't those things. I can't have any mass produced harms the earth kind of stuff, mainly for myself, but also because the guests are actively asking these questions, right? You know, vegan vegans didn't used to even register that wine could not be vegan. And now they're, now they're conscious of it. And I tell them everything on the menu is pretty much good to go for you. Don't worry about it until you get into like the really vintage stuff, the really old school stuff that where you might run into a few things, but I feel like we're going to get into that world. I think labeling those things on the bottle um, if they don't get too greedy with how much they charge for that to happen, which in some countries, they just don't even do it. Like the winemaker won't even go for it because it's too expensive and they've always been organic, right? They don't need to have a label for the thing they've already been doing, right? I think if we don't get ahead of ourselves and charging too much for those, for those, uh, labels on the bottle, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of those, the Demeter stuff, the, you know, all those, like the Austrians are a pretty good barometer of where we're kind of going with that. I think so. That would be, I would say more more climate friendly is kind of is it, it's kind of impossible to not go that way. It's either that or be destroyed. So I don't really see how you kind of avoid that. 
Um, as far as like things like different varietals, I think we're going to see a little bit more pick pool, like quality pick pool come out. I think we're going to see uh, a little bit more esoteric grapes being tried in places like Central Coast, California, but not Santa Barbara, uh, Clarksville, stuff like that, which is actually quite warm. Uh, I think it's just going to be interesting. I think it's going to be a lot of experimentation. What about uh, the food and kind of restaurant scene in LA? You know, it got hit pretty hard during COVID. Where do you think that's kind of headed? I think smaller, less chains, which uh, going up in, in Dallas and going to school in Ohio, uh, chain central in Dallas. It's actually one of the major chain hubs, right? Um, I think less of that in LA, even less so than there already was. There already is a significantly lower amount of those uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, but I think we're going to see smaller more efficiently run restaurants. I, I'm not buying into the robots taking server jobs just yet. I think that they're kind of a little kitschy right now. And I've been to a few of them where like a robot will deliver your beer, right? I'm thinking Kura Sushi, uh, which is like a rotating sushi thing from Japan. So like you order something and a robot will bring a beer. I've also seen that robot dump beer all over someone by accident. So just like a server does, by the way. Uh, but I think when it comes to like, I don't really think automation is a true enemy of higher end restaurants that require a sommelier and everything like that. When you have a clientele who doesn't know what they're getting, they haven't like, it's not like it's a hamburger, right? It's like, they don't know what they're getting in terms of like, which wine goes with this. If you don't know what to input into a system, you can't have a recommendation. So that's why the sommelier is there to guide someone because the food is a little bit more complex, right? So I think we're kind of, kind of, I'm not sold on the, uh, automation of the industry in that regard. Uh, but I do think places are going to be doing stuff that's a little bit more like fresh day-to-day -day menus change every like hour. People were running out of stuff just because we're getting so, we're running so lean. I think of restaurants in LA that are really killing it on that front, like Found Oyster, uh, doing that kind of raw bar stuff, Crudo and Nudo in Santa Barbara doing really wonderful stuff. There's a lot of restaurants that are opening up and there may be like 20 seats, seven seats, stuff like that. You're not getting the giant um, multi-level cheesecake factory kind of things anymore. They really are these like really passionate, small um, restaurants. Now you have your bigger ones, but I think when that's what LA excels at is kind of like low risk, high reward with some of these restaurants. What's next for you professionally? I love what's happening at Sushi Note. I think what we're doing is unlike anything else in the country. So I'm looking forward to see the future of that. And I think the future of Sushi Note is very much uh, bearing on my future as well, because it's just such a unique program. And the people who work there are so wonderful that the idea of not being there makes me very sad. So I don't really foresee myself not being uh, intertwined with that. Um, for me professionally, I do want to lean a little bit into hosting experience, you know, kind of guidance and like, I don't know, exploring global cuisine as well in the world, especially through the lens of wine. Uh, like I mentioned, Anthony Bourdain's name, you know, all the time, that kind of idea of like the constant adventures, you know, I've always done, even no matter where I was working, I was always like taking, traveling to this place. Everywhere I travel is based on wine, right? I don't go to places without a vibrant wine scene until I exhaust those. And that's kind of everywhere. So I'll never be able to exhaust it. So I think it's that more in the, the wine media kind of like wine host, bringing wine to the masses on a global scale, as opposed to just this one restaurant in, in Los Angeles. That being said, one does not cancel the other because I'm just so happy at Sushi Note uh, 
seeing people's faces as they have these crazy pairings and trying these wines they've never heard of or had preconceived notions about, like you were talking about. Uh, these are the kinds of experiences that really make life very fulfilling for me. So we've got a few more questions here as we begin to wrap up. So this question was left behind from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Janice Carte, who's the owner and founder of Tiny Spoon Chef based out of Boston, Massachusetts, but they got locations all over. Uh, she left behind, what's the last meal that surprised you and left you wondering or left you in awe? You know what? I just had Moroccan fried chicken delivered through an online delivery, you know, like a DoorDash or Uber Eats kind of thing. And it's from a restaurant called Ms. Lala. And Ms. Lala is like kind of like that Middle Eastern food. And I just needed to, needed something else to fill out, to round out the order. Because I know Ms. Lala is amazing. And it was really, really great kind of shawarma, stuff like that. And then I said, oh, Moroccan fried chicken. Okay, sure. I was craving fried chicken. I hadn't had fried chicken in a while. Uh, and then I got it. And I got to tell you, it wasn't even remotely oily. I can't even describe the texture. It was flaky, but crunchy, rich, but light at the same time. So nuts. And whatever they spiced it with, just like even my wife, who had no interest in having it at that moment, took a bite and was like, oh my God. And then we ate all of it very quickly. That was something I wasn't even remotely expecting. There's a restaurant down the street from us who's had a lot of success called Anna Jack Thai Food. And they do a little bit of fusion one, one or two days a week in their fried chicken probably is in that category as well. Just all these spices you don't associate with fried chicken coming together, making something really, really great. Uh, that would be the most recent one, I think. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What is the most unexpected or interesting food and wine pairing you've ever had? This uh, next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, what's the worst wine you've ever had? There was one winery and forgive me, it was years ago, so I can't remember the name. It was definitely uh, Northern California. And as kind of an experiment, now, to be fair, they were selling this, but they weren't trying to hoodwink anybody. They let you know it had smoke taint. And so it tasted like barbecue sauce. I think it had to have been like a Zinfandel or something like that. And so it just was almost syrupy coming out of the bottle. Like, like it just had that viscous kind of feel to it. And I tell you, it was like, like I said, the smokiest barbecue sauce you ever had. So I, I would say that would be the worst from a that's actually wine kind of idea. Uh, for a while there, people were doing the chocolate and red wine mix in the bottle. That was definitely not a pleasurable experience for me. But okay, I got it. When I was working, I wasn't in wine yet. Uh, I was working overtime. And to say thank you, the boss I was working with gave me a bottle of wine that was in the back of his trunk in 100 degree heat for about two weeks. And that was in lieu of paying me actual overtime, by the way. So I won't say their name because that's totally illegal. And then instantly started puking all over the place back in my apartment with it. So that's got to be the one. Because I remember the label. I remember the wine. And it's not a bad wine. This was just totally cooked. So it had to be that. He, I think someone just gave it to him or he grabbed it from behind a, behind a restaurant that they had thrown it out. It was a really weird thing. That guy cut a lot of corners <laughs> when it came to bonuses. Let's put it that way. Last set of questions here. Uh, we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far? Yeah, Dan Veit, no doubt. Dan Veit was one, worked at Le Marchand in Santa Barbara with Brian McClintock, who is one of the people in the Somme documentary. Those two worked there. Dan Veit was the one in West Hollywood who was consummate professional. Uh, the only downside to working with him was that he was a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and that's just gross. But he was always sharp, ready to go, extremely professional, extremely open to helping. 
which has led me to be open to helping with my team as well. Really great beverage director, great sommelier. I mean, just a wonderful person to work for. Easily the biggest influence to this day. And I told him when I passed my certification that this is his doing. He really changed the course of my life. I can't thank him enough for that. What's your desert island wine? I got it's That's a tough one because I just got asked this. And I said, I feel like the answer has to be champagne. And if I'm going champagne, it would be Vilmart for that. Just because it actually has a beautiful sugar balance that, uh, that I love. Uh, who am I kidding? It's going to be like a Riesling from Alsace. It just has to be. Probably something from Domaine Weinbach, maybe Cuvée Colette. I could just drink that forever. Not even a Grand Cru. Just something I just pop and pour and not feel guilty about chugging it on this deserted island before I die of alcohol poisoning from all the Riesling and champagne I'm drinking. Well, Riesling, because it's only the one bottle I get. So there you go. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give. Person gets uh, stuck at the airport overnight. You guys aren't open. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Right now, I mentioned Found Oyster. I think that one's one of the more unique dining experiences. No reservations. You just got to walk in there. Hope you get a seat. Uh, Ari Collender, who I have worked with as the chef there, doing wonderful kind of coastal Carolina stuff, which is he's from Charleston or he worked in Charleston. It's just adulterated seafood, right? So it's like scallops still on the shell, oysters perfectly shucked. He was working with a gentleman named Rory, uh, who was actually, a, strangely enough, a family friend of my or a friend of my brother's. Our brothers know each other, essentially, uh, from SMU. Uh, and the stuff they were doing before Rory now runs Caparana Bar, which is really, really wonderful as well. And that's killing it right now. But Found Oyster is one of those spots where it's just happiness. It's, you know, clams, oysters, everything, just very little done to it. So expertly, expertly done, but simple, which I just love. Found Oyster's got to be it for me. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place you haven't visited yet that you still want to go, any place that you haven't eaten at, dined at yet that you still want to visit? I suppose I have to say French Laundry because I've never been, but I think Noma would be the one. I mean, how do you not say it at this point? Uh, I just love that part of Europe. And uh, that's like the gross oversight of, of uh, not going there. So that, that would have to be it. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Oh, I have seen someone after not being able to get a table because we were full up, repeatedly slam the door on the host. Like the host was literally having to push them, like kind of back them out of the restaurant. And we actually have it on camera. A friend of mine shows it once a year when, when, when the date comes up uh, and it's someone grabbing the door and just slamming it on this person. They were later arrested, right? But like just slamming it on, on the host. The host that day happened to be uh, the assistant manager. So it wasn't like they were slamming it on some 20-year-old kid. It was someone with some with the ability to take a couple hits of a door, but that would definitely be it. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, anything like that that's just unhealthy for you, but uh, you just can't help yourself? Every Friday, I would have Skyline Chili every Friday when I was in college. Uh, I miss it. I have my friends from Cincinnati ship me Skyline Chili, and I do what I can out here. So that would be it uh, as far as beverage. Because I always am careful not to judge anything as good or bad, but every now and then, I just want the sugariest Mai Tai you can give me. I mean, I don't even want like the craft old school recipe Mai Tai. I mean, like if you could get me like a powdered mix or slushy kind of situation with that, I'll take that all day. Wine recommendations. So we kind of broke this into four price points. So what would you recommend for your kind of person into wine, you know, average kind of wine enthusiast? Anything zero to $20 is the first category. So basically $20 and under $50 and under 
is the second category. So it can still be at the same price point below 20 for that category too, if you want it. Under $100, so 100 and under, and then over $100, kind of no limit. It's $8.99 the last time I checked, but I haven't checked in a minute. And inflation means it's probably $89.99 now. Uh, no, but uh, $8.99 Chateau Saint-Michel Dry Riesling. The 2014 vintage was the first one I had. And man, that thing overproduced. They kind of caught on to it. A lot of people have caught on to it now, but that, make sure it says dry on the label because I'm. it's very different than the regular Riesling that doesn't say dry. So that one's pretty readily available. That's the one I say, if you just need to pop and pour something tonight and you like high acid wine, that's the one. $50 and under, I think Daniela Conterno, so the great grandson of Giacomo Conterno, I think, if I'm not getting that wrong, uh, Daniela Conterno Longe Nebbiolo, I think is really, really beautiful Northern Italian Nebbiolo for the price point. I know that one is one that's pretty readily uh, available as well. It's a little bit more velvety and plush for Nebbiolo, but I think it's a crowd pleaser in that regard. So I would say that. Oh, and I'm going to actually bump that one a little bit and say Ridge any Ridge Zinfandel, the Three Valleys comes to mind. I think it's about 35 bucks as well. Zero to 100. I think it's like upper 70s, maybe. Marcel Dice Altenberg de Bergheim, Grand Cru Riesling. One of the few Grand Cru vineyards that actually allows blending. Has a little bit of sugar, which makes it really great with autumnal dishes. So if you're down for like foie gras, stuff like that, uh, anything, you know, foie gras with like dates or any kind of fruit or anything like that. It's going to be really great with that. I crack a bottle of that on my anniversary every few years. Really, really lovely. The earlier you can get in the 2000s, the better, by the way, on that one. So you might have to check collections for that. And then if money is no object, a vintage Cornos, if you can get it, Matthew Barrett comes to mind. It's a minimal intervention Cornos. And that one's one that's just, Cornos is probably the most rustic part of the Northern Rhone. It's the southernmost part of the Northern Rhone. It's like kind of like this barnyard and like farm flavors, savory beef, uh, like, like, like fat, smoke, blue flowers. It's just like kind of an assault. It's just really, really lovely stuff. So that's the one that comes to mind. I would decant the hell out of it. That would be the one. Yeah. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Uh, Shitty Wine Memes is hilarious. Shitty Wine Memes is really, really funny. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Uh, I believe you are too, but not everybody is. You know, if you were, is there a episode moment scene about him that stands out to you that you always remember? If you weren't, is there any other culinary personalities in Emerald or Jacques Pepin, anything like that, uh, that you kind of gravitated towards? Yeah, Pepin's omelet making with just a fork is, you can find it on YouTube, is one of the funnest and most like eye-opening things of how much technique he actually has. Uh, but like you said, Bourdain is one of those ones. I, the thing that comes to mind is he's at In-N-Out. I think he's in it. This is just an interview like off the street. I don't think it was on any show. And he's at In-N-Out and he is eating a double-double animal style. The main draw of it, I might be getting the order wrong, but basically the idea of it is he's clearly hungover where he does not take the sunglasses off. He's clearly had a good time last night and he is fighting so hard to not be bummed out he's doing this interview while he's just trying to eat a hamburger. But then it's Anthony Bourdain giving the most Anthony Bourdain answers about like just the clarity of his ideas and everything like that just fits really well with him. So that's the one that springs to mind for Anthony Bourdain. I can't tell you how much I think we lost that one too early, that, that gentleman. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. 
uh, Loki Wine Guy on Instagram. It's L O K E Y. That is my last name. It's really topical since Marvel stuff started happening. So that's really fun. Also, LokiWine.com is where my wine consulting thing is. Feel free to drop a note. That's with my wife and I. And then Sushi Note is where I'm running the beverage program in Los Angeles. Really big, big fan of what we're doing over there, which is weird because if I wasn't, that would be bad. Restaurants open 5 30 every day. And then reservations, obviously, uh, highly encouraged. Is it the first of the month, next month opens? Ish, the window kind of shifts. If, 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 I would always say, as long as, like, we don't do it way, way ahead of time. But if you're interested in doing stuff, you can always call or drop an email if it's outside the window, and we'll see what we can do. But the earlier, the better is what I, is what I would say. Because we are only 40, 40-ish seats. Not a lot of room for walk-ins. It used to be a lot more, but we've gotten quite popular, uh, which is a good problem. But reservation strongly recommended on that one. Well, this was awesome. I know you got to make your way over to the restaurant to begin service and everything, but the restaurant looks amazing. All the stuff that they post and everything. Uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of sushi and especially omakase uh, style sushi. So, you know, any chance we get to, to travel and, and find some of those type of restaurants, you know, they're always at the top of the list. And like I said, LA is one of kind of those places that we haven't really ventured into and, you know, roundabout ways uh, got delayed or paused on that. So looking forward to getting out there and, and checking out some of the restaurants that are high up on our list and everything that you have going on with the, the low key wines and everything. It's a little bit different concept than everybody else has that have done, you know, shifted to kind of like their own wine business where you, you have kind of this, you know, online recommendation consulting thing where that's something that nobody else really has tapped into. And I think that's something that will continue to expand as people learn more about wine, but also drinking habits and everything are shifting to more at home and, and with inflation and everything too, people are going out less and less and whatnot. Congratulations on all the success. Good luck with the sake certification. You know, we'll be following along and uh, living vicariously through you for a little bit too. Love what you're doing over there. Love this. Thank you. Big thanks again to Ian for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his morning before going into the restaurant, chatting about his career and wine and sushi and how he wound up there and everything. So uh, Sushi Note seems like a, a great restaurant. It's currently, you know, ranked among the top restaurants in LA, in the LA area for sushi. It's among the best of the best. And like he said, it's a smaller uh, restaurant, so reservations pretty much are needed uh, to get in there if, if you plan on going. But you can follow him on Instagram at LowKeyWineGuy, also the restaurant itself at SushiNoteLA. Um, also visit his website, LowKeyWine.com. They're still doing their online sommelier thing that he was doing that he founded a, a couple years ago, so that is still active. Um, so if you're curious about wine recommendations or anything like that, tasting events that he has coming up, you can find all that information there. Uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMom. Check out our website, SpoonMom.com, and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever your preferred podcast player is. But that is it for this week. Thank you for everybody who's been listening and helping spread the word. Continue to do so. Uh, we really appreciate it. We keep growing. Uh, audience keeps growing, you know, month over month. So super happy about that, that uh, we always have new people kind of following along and uh, listening to some of the episodes. So continue to do what you guys have been doing. Really appreciate it. That is it for this week. And we will talk to you guys next week.